0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Mackey, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. We've all been in clinic going about our busy day, seeing a patient for some random chief complaint when it soon becomes clear that the current patient has an eating disorder. The signs are all there weight loss, mood changes, avoidance of food, etc. Immediately, you know this patient needs you to take the time to ask the right questions and do a medical evaluation to make sure they're not needing hospitalization. You are officially going to be running behind the rest of the day as you try to figure out what needs to be done for this patient and coordinate with other providers. The medical evaluation for eating disorders is very important. It's your job as a primary care provider to rule out other causes of weight loss, especially when eating disorder signs might not be as apparent in the beginning or the patient isn't entirely forthcoming. Additionally, the patient and their family have an inherent trust in you as their long-term medical provider. What you say and do at this point can set the stage for successful treatment. This is the third episode in our eating disorder podcast series. We will focus on the medical evaluation and management of eating disorders, what vital signs are significant. What labs are necessary, including how often should you be performing them? How frequently do they need to be seen in collaboration with their therapist? And most important, how to determine if the patient is medically unstable and needing immediate admission for monitoring and treatment? Today, we are joined by two pediatricians at Mayo Clinic Children's Center, Dr. Marcy Billings and Dr. Paige Partain, both my colleagues and collaborators in the Mayo Clinic Primary Care Child and Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You know, we were just talking before we started that we can all imagine this scenario where it's four o'clock on a Friday and all of a sudden you're seeing a patient for a well child visit and you pull up their growth chart and you realize there's something going on. Why has this child lost so much weight? In a previous episode, we've talked about kind of what questions to get at in regards to kind of teasing out eating disorder symptoms. But today we're really going to focus on our medical hat we wear for the medical evaluation. So Paige, imagine yourself in that setting like you've been in many times before, what are you going to be doing for your medical
1: evaluation for this patient? Oh man, yes. It's always Friday at four o'clock, isn't it? That's it's what always. that happens. Yes. The first thing that I like to do in those scenarios is you really have to cast a broad net from a medical standpoint. I like to think of it as a dual purpose evaluation. I'm doing on the one hand, kind of a rule out. I want to be looking for other medical reasons that might explain why this child is having weight loss or what might explain some of the other symptoms that I've ascertained when I go through the history questions. And the other piece of what I want to be doing in my workup is really making sure that this is a medically stable patient, that this patient is appropriate to be outside the hospital. So I'm really trying to make sure that I include everything under kind of both of those umbrellas. What that means is it's kind of a lot. I start in the office by making sure that I get a good set of orthostatic vital signs from the patient, usually at least two point orthostatics, though three points are, I think, really helpful. That's one of the biggest things that we look at when we're thinking about medical stability. And from a lab standpoint, typically it's a pretty broad net. So I'll be looking at basic blood counts, inflammatory markers, typically a comprehensive metabolic panel. And at our lab, at least that does not include a magnesium and a phosphorus. So I'll make sure that I add those on because that's something that can be abnormal, particularly in eating disorder patients. I'll add in things like ferritin or iron studies, vitamin D levels, and Other sort of big picture rule outs like celiac, thyroid, and then depending on some of the other symptoms they have, I might add in additional tests. but that's sort of the bulk of what I'll include each time. And in addition to sort of the vital signs and the labs, probably one of the most important things to get is an EKG. That's by and large, one of the biggest risks for our patients with active eating disorders is any kind of cardiac abnormalities like bradycardia or conduction abnormalities. So we don't want to miss that.
0: No, we should make sure we get into talking about why that phosphorus is so important a little bit later as we're talking about bridging and refeeding syndrome. You mentioned some other labs. Marcy, your expertise is is really in adolescence care and have really like led our practice in that area. If the patient is female and they have amenorrhea, what labs would you tend to get? and, And when do you expect the menstrual cycle to return after they've started treatment?
2: Those are great questions, and I think we all just jump to the assumption that most likely the amenorrhea is due to the caloric insufficiency, which likely it is, but just as Dr. Partain said, you know, we're kind of in that dual mode of trying to figure out is there something else that's driving it, and so I think that is an important time if they are amenorrheic to make sure there's nothing else that's causing it aside from the body not getting enough calories and energy. So typically as part of what Paige is doing, you know, the thyroid assessment is very important. So that's going to be there. I think just checking some other hormone levels, LH, FSH, prolactin, don't ever forget about pregnancy. So an HCG would be in there as well. And then just like anyone else, I would utilize my androgen testing, depending on if they are showing any history or physical exam findings that would make me think of uh, androgen excess type situation.
0: And some research that one of our colleagues here did is that there is some overlap between polycystic ovary syndrome and eating disorders. Patients with PCOS are more likely or at higher risk to develop eating disorders than the general population. So I know I have picked up on some patients that had PCOS and still were underweight, and that's a significant portion of patients I think that you see um, in your practice as well. Is that right,
2: Marcy? I think we think of a certain type of patient with a certain type of disorder. And so I think this can go two ways when we're thinking about eating disorder. The high BMI patients that do have an eating disorder may get overlooked, as well as low BMI patients that may have PCOS. And so I think those are two huge areas that we need to be really aware of as primary care physicians and providers to make sure we don't overlook those populations because they might not fit exactly into what we think they should present as. And most patients going to some type of standardized eating disorder program,
0: these are pretty routine as part of the lab evaluation that they would require as part of their intake. Is that correct? From my perspective, absolutely. Okay. What about binge purge disorder?
2: Does that medical evaluation look any different, Marcy? You know, I guess initially, I don't think so. We're still concerned. I think what might change is depending on their response with their purging behaviors would be how I would determine the follow-up plan. There's concerns for both those that are continuing to be active with their purging as well as those that completely shut down their purging. Although that's what we want them to do, there are some conditions that can happen with the kidney function and such with regards to edema formation for those patients that actually do exactly what we tell them which is to stop purging depending on what they do we might need to be following labs more frequently if they're having escalation of purging or if they completely stop
0: How frequently, like if they were continuing to have escalation of purging, would you consider bare minimum of getting labs uh, with their frequency?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. I think we're probably going to be seeing them on a weekly basis anyway. So I would consider weekly labs, you know, at that time and then determining if I need something sooner or can prolong them depending on my in-office evaluation and history as well. Mm -hmm. Paige had mentioned we do this lab evaluation to rule out other causes,
0: but then also make sure that they're not medically unstable. So let's talk a little bit more about when do you hospitalize? What are the laboratory cutoffs and other things that warrant that patient to be admitted right away?
2: That's a great question. And I think, you know, anytime we're seeing patients in the office, I mean, that is what we're trying to acutely determine is do they need a medical stabilization hospitalization? And the quickest thing that will get them hospitalized are gonna be any electrolyte abnormalities. So especially things like a low phosphorus initially, because as you mentioned, if we start to add calories, if they're starting off with a low phosphorus, we might expect it to go down. Any of the low states, low um, potassium, low phosphorus, low magnesium. And then the biggest one that I think we see and what we end up admitting the most for and having the most concern for is bradycardia and low heart rate. Currently, heart rates under 50 are what is a admissible criteria for a medical stabilization, hospitalization. Obviously, if they're having significant syncopal episodes, if they're having severe weight loss in a short period of time, if they're failing outpatient therapy, I think that one can be a little challenging based on access and. Demand for inpatient spots for this. If they don't eat for two to three days or more, I mean, those are things that make me think wow, this patient really needs to be under the guise of, of hospitalization. Dr. Partain mentioned orthostatics and symptomatic orthostatic hypotension um, is going to be something that would consider putting them in the hospital as well. So, Dr.
0: Billings, this becomes a challenge sometimes to really convince families of the risk and the immediate concern. How do you convey that concern to families and the urgency of, of really needing to get immediate hospitalization?
2: my best analogy, and I think all of us in our clinic have used it, is trying to find a comparable diagnosis that people have really no trouble understanding the severity of and really likening it to it. And so I know in our practice, we use the comparable diagnosis of something like leukemia. Most people, if they hear their child is diagnosed with leukemia, there's no question as to what will be the, you know, you're going right to the hospital. And so when we discuss the mortality rate that is higher for a restricted, eating disorder than leukemia, and we talk about some analogies of treatment and, you know, really what can happen. And anytime you bring up the implications to the two body systems of brain and heart are what you're most concerned about acutely for for their child, I think that really sets the stage for understanding the severity and why we're concerned about this, obviously with sensitivity, you know, and talking about those things. Because I think most families aren't ready to hear this. They're a bit blindsided in my opinion, when they come in. And, you know, I've admitted a number of patients on their first visit, and that is absolutely not what families are thinking is going to happen. And so it's a sensitive situation, but it is severe complications. And again, anytime you bring up the heart as a problem, I think that really helps people understand that we need to get on
0: board. Dr. Parteen, do you have any examples? And then also, I guess we should follow up with where are we admitting these patients to? I know we don't need to give examples in our state, but in general, where would people be
1: admitting these patients to? Yeah, I think in general, what you're going to be looking for is a children's hospital, ideally one that admits children and adolescents that can do acute medical stabilization. So that's not necessarily going to be the case for every children's hospital. So it will be really important to be aware of the resources and the hospital systems that are around you locally, but these hospitals really need to be well-equipped enough to monitor these patients while they're beginning the refeeding process. So what they need at the bare minimum is a medical team that's familiar with that process But very often what it also involves is having a multidisciplinary team that can help support the families because very often, like Dr. Billings said, we're sort of blindsiding them a little bit and sending them into the hospital when they thought they were just coming in for a clinic visit. So often those teams include social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, in addition to their medical team. I really like the discussion of the medical analogy. I feel like that really hits home for families when you're talking about the fact that if their child was diagnosed with the most common form of childhood leukemia, they would have a 5% chance of death. And what we're looking at with a diagnosis of anorexia could be, depending on what study you look at, anywhere from 15 to 20%. I think those numbers really hit home for people. And I'll often say, I recognize that this is going to be really hard for your son or your daughter, but if I diagnosed them with leukemia and they said that they don't like how the treatments make them feel or that they don't want to go to the hospital or that they felt sick, what would you do? And they're like, I'd put them in the car and take them to the hospital. And so I think it's really helpful to put that metaphor in place for these parents so that they understand that they are literally saving their child's life.
0: The stark reality is, is that most patients won't see an eating disorder provider because there's you know, a significant lack of trained eating disorder providers across the United States and, and across countries throughout the world. So a lot of it falls on the shoulders of primary care providers. So Dr. Partain, let's talk a little bit about if you're waiting to get into an eating disorder program for one of your patients, how are you going to manage them medically and what can you do as a primary care provider
1: in that bridging period? And sometimes it's months or longer? Absolutely. And it's a a painful few months, but that's the reality is you're going to be dealing with that pretty much anywhere. And if you're dealing with only a month or two, you may be in a place with better access than most. So I think the most important thing when you're bridging medically is to recognize that you really need close follow-up. I think the danger is to lose these patients to follow up and have them three, four, five weeks out, having not had a clinic visit. I like to shoot for at a bare minimum every other week follow-ups, but really ideally we're going to be shooting for weekly. And when you have them come in for those visits, you want to be getting a new set of vitals, probably orthostatics at the very least with weight, height, blood pressure. You want to be looking at how they're doing symptomatically. What's the report of how they've been doing with their intake in the last week, kind of pairing that with what you're seeing in their vital signs. Is their weight stable? Are they losing significantly? Are we worried enough that we might actually need to re-evaluate their medical stability? So I think that's the most important part part of medical bridging is having an eye out for whether they are still medically stable, because there are times where eating disorders are severe and patients are continuing to lose weight and they actually can become medically unstable while they're waiting placement and treatment. And so at that point, what we need to do is the next step completely changes. They, it becomes the hospital and they need to be in the hospital right away. So if patients are losing weight at their ongoing follow-ups with you as a primary, it's going to be up to you to repeat their vital signs, repeat at the bare minimum their electrolyte panels and their Foss from a lab standpoint and their EKG, because those, as Marcy pointed out, are the, are the things that are most often going to get them admitted to the hospital.
0: Excellent. What messaging can primary care providers give to their patients at this point? Can they ask the families to start the refeeding process or does that feel like
1: too much? Oh, absolutely. I think, and very often the, the families want to know something they can do if they have bought into the message that you've talked through with them. I think that the best thing that they can tell families is food is their medicine. And just think about it that way. Think about any food is good food, food is their medicine. So any food that you can get them to eat, ideally trying to get them to eat more regularly throughout the day. Often they'll have much more success if they start with smaller meals and snacks throughout the day, but just even starting that process can make a huge difference in their success in eating disorder treatment. You know, I've had patients come to me in my specialty clinic already starting to gain five, six, seven pounds, and they're sort of well into their process. And it makes my job as an eating disorder provider so much easier because the families already sort of taken off running.
2: I think another added piece that I found effective is the focus on eating normally. So a lot of these patients are coming in with very <laughs> infrequent episodes of eating throughout the day. And so when you go from that to telling a family as a primary care provider that they need to gain weight, it's a, it's a huge stretch. And they, they might not have yet bought into this idea that this is what's going on. If you back off a little bit and say, all right, let's focus on eating normally. And eating normally is three meals a day and two to three snacks a day. We know that if they do that, they're going to gain weight or at least not lose weight, most likely. And, and if, if you can manage that as a bridge, as a primary care provider, you're going to make a huge amount of headway because really that stabilization process and just stopping that active weight loss is going to be huge for the, for the patient. And I think they understand that more. Eating normally versus gaining weight is two whole different ballgames, I think, in terms of the thought
1: process for what families and patients are doing. I think it's crucial too to have the primary providers starting this process because if you have a family that's at all hesitant often when we start to nudge even just to eating normally we start to see more of those symptoms come out or the symptoms really intensify and if the family was questioning at all could this be an eating disorder when their teenager is kicking and screaming and refusing to eat a muffin they start to recognize like oh Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that it would be this hard for you that I'm asking you to eat. And then you, you come in with families that have even better buy-in when you start to see them in treatment.
0: Marcy, can we talk a little bit about what you would do to bridge a patient with binge purge disorder? Would the recommendations be different than what Paige just talked about with anorexia?
2: Not really. I mean, I think from the frequency standpoint, I would do exactly what Paige said is, you know, weekly is preferred, you know, probably every two weeks, depending on access and patient issues, different attention on behaviors, but really with any eating disorder patient, we're always asking about eating disorder behaviors because you never know when a patient with a fully restrictive eating disorder, I mean, it's who knows what might Mm -hmm. happen as things progress. And so you really want to make sure that you're understanding what they're going through with their eating disorder during. And, and really trying to figure out what you do need to be medically concerned about. One of the other things that I wanna add on this is the idea of exercise. Medically, we focus a lot on what's going in and caloric gaining. But one of the things that we do medically is really talk about getting rid of what's going out from a calorie expenditure. So that's a hard conversation as we all know. But you know, from a medical standpoint, it's, it's very important because again, we're worried about cardiac health And we're focusing on the medical issue of caloric sufficiency and and, and gain. So reducing the output is going to be critical up front. And, And medically, there is reason behind that.
0: Absolutely. So primary care providers additionally should try and restrict. Until they get to their their specialty clinic and they can decide. But I mean, that's one of the things that we do in our sports physicals is ask about eating disorders and look at their weight. So we probably should not be clearing people that we have an active ongoing concern for an eating disorder. What do you do if you're really struggling to get the family on board with the diagnosis and the recommended treatment plan? Paige, why don't you start kind of talking about what your approach would be?
1: Yeah, I think... Initially, as with many things, getting a taking a step back and trying to get a better sense of what their concern is. I'm often surprised by what the family says their concern is or the reason why they're hesitant about a diagnosis. It may not be the things that I'm suspecting. And so trying to understand where they're coming from and getting a sense of what they want to be able to do to help. What would you like to see that's different or better with your child? Because very often, even if they don't necessarily think that the symptoms are coming from an eating disorder, they recognize that there's some symptoms there. They recognize that their child is fatigued, isn't keeping up as well in their sports, is starting to have more headaches, is starting to be more withdrawn or have mood concerns. And so trying to get a sense of what they are bought into really helps that conversation, I think. And if it's, I wanna help her mood be better. I wanna help her have more energy, helping them understand that realistically, food helps those things, regardless of whether it's an eating disorder. So very often I'll kind of start the conversation there and say, you know what? I'm really worried about an eating disorder in this case, but the reality is even for my patients who are depressed, having meals regularly is a huge part of me trying to help them feel better. So why don't we just focus on that? And then over time, often what happens is that they start to see more of the symptoms and maybe they start to buy in as we're working through that process.
0: Dr. Billings, do you have any approaches that you found especially helpful? And I think along kind of the opposite um, end of the spectrum is When do you get concerned that the parents failing to get their child appropriate medical treatment is considered some form of neglect?
2: I totally agree with Paige. And, you know, I guess in, in my mind, I think about really trying to identify those barriers to what we're trying to recommend. And so trying to understand and, and come to terms with wh- where is the patient coming from and the family, making sure that I've explained everything as best I can, understanding what is getting in the way. And a lot of the times it can be time, it can be other aspects of the family. This is a lot to ask of a family to do in terms of, of what we're asking on their time. And again, it's, it's usually not because they don't want to do it. Sometimes it can be just challenged by the three other children or the two work schedules of the parent or the defensiveness and the, the frustration of the patient in terms of wanting to go forward. And so I think really you know, utilizing resources if there's you know, our nursing staff, our social work staff that can really work with patients and families to try and figure that out. In the context of my visits, I really talk to families about the spectrum of what we can do. And I kind of start with, we can do nothing, which is probably not a good idea. (laughs) Or we might need to put them in the hospital today to medically stabilize them. We've kind of decided today we're doing some labs and EKG. We're going to hopefully rule this one out. And then in the middle, what are some options for care? And I kind of start off by highlighting, here's what we can do in a primary care-based clinic. Here's some intensive outpatient therapy models that could work. Here's some residential models that can, can, can work. And really try and understand where the patient is coming from. I think we do a, a great job of, of really setting the stage also of this is nobody's fault. So when things don't go well, just like if you had leukemia and you everything seems like you're, you're doing the plan and you go get your counts and the counts don't look good, that's nobody's fault. That just happens. And so really kind of understanding and working with families that, you know, this isn't going to be maybe a big trajectory up. You're going to have some two steps forward, maybe one step back approach and just, you know, really working on that. As with any diagnosis, though, if you are concerned that a family is not following through with recommended medical recommendations and that child's life is in danger of severe medical consequences, as in this case, it it very well could be. Say, for example, a, a patient that comes in with a heart rate of 36 and you have recommended medical stabilization and even a plan B that, okay, maybe we can't medically stabilize, but we need to see you back twice a week. We need to follow up with an EKG and they don't show or don't follow through, those are conditions where sometimes a, a medical neglect report might need to be filed. And again, really to a- assist as we do all the time with resources to help that family do what is
1: necessary. Yeah. Cause it's not typically that any family wants their child to suffer or wants their child not to have treatment. It's that those barriers are so great that they just can't wrap their head around what would that look like? How could I get my child to a hospital when I'm working two jobs? my spouse is working full-time and we have two other kids and all these other things that are going on that the idea of sort of screeching to a halt with everything else in their life and trying to do this can be really overwhelming for families. So if we can't get them on board, sometimes we need to help them find those resources so that they can be.
0: Well said, Dr. Partain. You know, we've reached the end of our time. Do you have any uh, parting words for all the primary care providers out there listening, trying to uh, manage these patients?
1: I think my only parting words are to use your power. I think as primary care providers, we hold a lot of cards and we often have a lot of rapport with these families. So don't hesitate to lean on that to help them understand the importance of this diagnosis and the follow-up.
0: We've been talking about medical management of eating disorders with Dr. Marcy Billings and Dr. Paige Partain. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Angela Mackey, or you can listen along to my Facebook show and podcast called Ask the Mayo Mama" on Mayo Clinic's Facebook. Stay healthy and see you next week.